I'd like to start this week by kind of just recapping what Mike talked about last week, because Mike actually preached on the first half of Galatians 3. Um, Last week we talked about the covenant that God had made with Abraham and the differences between contracts, commitment, and covenant. A contract being more of a a legal binding document, um, something that's very, very defined and is usually signed on a bottom line. A commitment being more of an intellectual or an emotional state to a, a, a person or to a, um, a, a, an action. Um, and, then, and then last but not least, the covenant, which um, we, he talked about, uh, something that's sealed by a vow or an oath in God's name. It's binding until death, inextricably linked to two parties to inextricably linking two parties together. And a great example of this in our modern day would be um, the marriage the marriage vows where we talk about, we basically say till death do us part, right? It's something that's intended to be maintained long term. And so we saw in the, in last week that the old covenant was made between God and Abraham and how Christ was in fact the one, the offspring that God promised to Abraham. And Christ was the one who would bring the blessing promised to Abraham, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And that blessing was the salvation from God provided in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So as we start moving towards the passage this week, I just kind of wanted to uh, tell you a little story that I found this week that I think kind of illustrates um, what we're talking about. On May 23rd, 1944, at 1.30 in the morning, 22-year-old pilot Ernest Holmes was flying over Germany um, after having... With his, uh, with his seven crew members after they, they had done a scouting run for bombing. Um, out of nowhere, they're attacked by a German fighter, and immediately the first two engines are hit. And when the third one is hit, he, he tells everybody to jump out, but before anybody can do anything, an explosion happens. And he's actually thrown out of the cockpit, but holding on or trapped in his harness, which eventually does break free just in time for him to parachute down to the ground safely. And unfortunately, uh, most of his crew was immediately killed by the by the crash. So here's Holmes. He's walking across this this field in the early morning hours. Um, actually, ironically, it's a, a German bombing uh, test field. And he runs into this lady who who sees him, and she immediately takes him to her parents' house where she's going to milk the cows. Um, their names are Fons and Mina. And they immediately hide him along with two other students that are hiding from the German soldiers. And he remembers feeling welcome and safe in this place, but he also remembers early on a friend of the family telling him, you really need to go as fast as possible because if they are caught housing you, they will be in, in extreme danger and probably killed. And so through some help from Fonz's contacts, he ends up making his way back towards England, but actually is eventually caught um, closer to home. Um, meanwhile, as he's gone on, to, gone on and others have come and gone um, at, uh, at this home, um, one morning on September 20th, 1944, actually just before the Allies are about to reach this area, uh, German soldiers meet him coming out of the church on a Wednesday morning, and they've been to his house. They've found evidence that he was housing um, fugitives, and they pin him down on it. And uh, with the uh, with the threats that have been made to his family, he admits that he has actually helped three pilots. 
Um, and as was said before, he was actually taken to a nearby field and executed. His, his six kids had to flee to another place. Uh, his wife actually fled to her brother's house because she didn't want to leave the area. And later on, Ernest Holmes actually finds out about this. And in an interview um, with the BBC, he emotionally remembers this. And what the first thing that came to his mind was a passage from John in the Bible. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Sorry, just a second. It's not view mode, Mike. <laughs> i wipe out half my sermon here. Um... So I tell you this this morning because I think that it's important as we're moving through Galatians that we're seeing the power of the pure gospel. We see that um, the gospel is what frees us and it's what saves us when we have no power of saving ourselves. Ernest Holmes was trapped in a place where most likely he would have been killed or at least imprisoned and then possibly killed. But this family, they put their lives on the line to take care of him and, and actually get him to a place where he eventually he would be free. In that same way, we are prisoners to our own sin, but only by the sacrifice of Christ we can be set free. We are powerless in our own efforts to free ourselves from our sin. So with that in mind, we're going to read uh, the Galatians 3, 19 through 26 passage that I'll be preaching on today. And uh, let's do that now. Starting in verse 19. Why then the law? Was it added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made? And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus we are all, you are all sons of God through faith. Excuse me for a second. So let's take some time and look at the verse, first couple of verses there, 19 and 20. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 19 tells us that the law was added because of transgressions. But what does that really mean? Romans 4.15 says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Without the law, we cannot know what sin is and that we need a Savior. This does not mean that without the law we haven't sinned. It means that the law has revealed our sin to us. The word is telling us that the law is not a mechanism by which we are saved. Rather, it's meant to point out our sin. It reveals our true nature and that we are in need of a Savior. There's a common theme in the law, and Jesus tells us what it is when he's asked by the Pharisees in Matthew 22, uh, what is the greatest commandment? 
In verse 37, he says, And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. It's telling us that the commandments are dependent on these two things. In reality, all sin is against God, and most of the other commandments, in one way or another, are tell, tell us how we're sinning against our neighbor, which Romans 13.9 also confirms. For most of us, murder may never be something that would enter our mind, but in 1 John 3.15, it tells us that the, that the heart behind murder is the same heart that of him who hates his brother. The same heart that may not consider marital infidelity can still struggle with lust and covetousness. Matthew 5.28 tells us that just looking with lust is the same as committing the act when it comes to our heart. The law is great at pointing out our fallenness to us. Mike talked last week about the good person test and how if we go through the commandments, especially without in mind of what Jesus says about it being tied to our hearts, that we really can't say that we've kept most, if any, of them. The law was never intended to save us. It was intended to point out where we fall short. And it was added so that we might be aware and prepared for the promise of the coming Christ. Christ who would fulfill the blessing promised, salvation. And again, not just salvation to the children of Israel, but also to the Gentiles. Verse 19 closes out, and we go into verse 20, seeing that the promise was put in place by an intermediary. An intermediary is someone who mediates, who negotiates between two parties at opposition. The word implies there that they are good, there for the good of both parties. And if you think about this, if you're in a, a situation where you need mediation, you really don't want that person doing mediation to be buddies with the other guy and not have any view of your good. You want someone who's neutral and who wants a resolution that meets the needs of both people involved. And that is what Christ is for us. In 1 Timothy 2.5 it says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and mankind, Jesus Christ. Our sin has separated us from God. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've fallen so short of it. And there was nothing in our own strength that we could do. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus stepped down in and mediated for us before the Father. His blood and his sacrifice on the cross paid the cost and fulfilled the justice that God required that was due to us. In verse 21 and 22, we see Paul switching gears here. When he says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then a righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that a promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul has given an explanation as to why the law was necessary in verses 19 and 20. And now with those truths laid out, he's coming back to explain that the law was a good thing and it served a purpose. It was part of God's plan. It was a method of revealing something to us. In verse 21, we see Paul telling us that if the law had been given by God to give life, then righteousness would be obtained by following the law. 
But we know it, even just looking back in the same chapter in verse 11, when Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith, that that's not true. We aren't saved by the law, we're saved by faith. And as we move to verse 22, he continues by telling us that the scripture, the word, the Bible, imprisoned or bound us, bound them under sin. So what does, what does that phrase, scripture, imprisoned, everything under sin, really mean? It means that it, it actually means to shut up or to hem in. But it's not something that's stifling them. It's actually intended to push them in a direction. And what is that direction? It's towards the promise, the promise that they would receive by faith, not by works, not by the law, only by faith in Jesus Christ, the coming Messiah. He continues in verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. He's basically saying here that before faith came, they were held captive under the law. Is this saying that faith was not active before the law? Well, let's see what Romans 4 has to say about this, starting in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as, a, as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then for only the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Me. Here we see that Abraham's faith preexisted the covenant and the law that was given. Back in 317, it tells us that the promise of Christ, which Abraham believed in and it was credited to him as righteousness, came 430 years before the law. Abraham was not saved by the law. He was not saved by the circumcision, which was a sign of the covenant that God was making with Abraham and the people that God would bring through him. Abraham's faith came first. God purposed to make him the father of all who believe by faith. The circumcision was just a seal of the righteousness that God had already credited to him. 
So just to clarify here, in Romans, we clearly see that even for the Jews, the intention was that they would believe. The seal of circumcision and the law that would come after was not what God counted to them as righteousness. It was the faith that their father Abraham had counted, that God had wanted for both the Jews and the Gentiles to lead them to salvation. We see in Galatians 3.24 that the law is a guardian in order that we might be justified by faith. And other translations say this is schoolmaster or tutor. In ancient times, it would be common in well-to-do households for there to be a servant who was in charge of mainly the boys to discipline them, to guide them, and even in some case, rare occasions to even help them move forward in their education. And that's what the law was for us. It was intended to move us to the point of our point out our sin and to the promise that would be coming be fulfilled in the coming Christ. They needed to see their need for the promised Messiah to make atonement for their sins. In verses 25 and 26, he tells us, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So now we are no longer under the guardian, the tutor, the teacher of the law. In Christ, we have all become sons of God through faith. But in this new covenant, what is the sign by which we're sealed? Ephesians 1.13 tells us, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So the seal that we receive comes from comes by hearing the word of truth, and in hearing we receive the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ. We no longer have a physical ex, uh, expression of the covenant that was promised to Abraham, the one that was used for Abraham with circumcision. We have a spiritual one, which is the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is actively working in our lives, breaking and remaking, forming us into Christ's image. We've been adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. We're no longer under the power of sin. We are brought close by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So now as we look back on that scripture, what does this really mean for all of us? Well, first we need to keep in mind that we have a mediator, an intermediary. It's Christ. And by him we are righteous before God when we believe by faith in him. We don't have to live under the law as a slave to uh, as a slave to the law or as a slave to lawlessness. Even today with the Bible readily available to us in so many forms, written, digital, audio, and the opportunity to hear the gospel clearly and regularly through written form, through preaching and personal study, there's still a push for the law and or sometimes towards the other way, towards lawlessness in our world. Lawlessness in some ways has become the new law to many. It's driven by a desire in our flesh to do it our way. Sometimes it's the literal Ten Commandments or the food laws or procedural laws of the Old Testament. Again, if we're clinging to that, we're trying to do it our way. And as actually we discussed in our life group this week, attempts to follow the law end up divorcing the physical and the emotional, the physical and the emotional and mental from the spiritual component of our being. As we saw earlier, Christ brought it back 
to our hearts when he told the Jews that even if they they lust, they've already committed adultery, just as one example. So we must not try to separate the parts of who we are in an effort to self-justify our sin, but rather place ourselves in submission to the Father and ask him to transform us, not just our emotional or physical expressions that lead us to sin, but the spiritual, the core, our heart, into the image of his Son. And if you're not a follower of Christ, perhaps this is something you struggle with in a very specific way. Maybe you try to live a good life, feel like you've mostly kept the Ten Commandments, at least in your own view. Maybe it's you trying to earn your way to heaven through other means that the world has told you or other religions, or that you just made up yourself by picking and choosing. Just be the best version of yourself and keep your decided morals to yourself and you'll be just fine. That's kind of the mantra of our day. But basically, you're making up your own way based on what you believe by piecing things together without any objective truth to define the true way to God. And to be honest, it can also creep into the life of believers of Christ. Usually it's in very subtle ways, but it can happen just the same. This is why we must seek God through his word and through his spirit. Jesus is very clear in John 14, 6, when he declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's not a lot of wiggle room in that statement. He is our mediator. We cannot negotiate our pay or pay our debt on our own. If you haven't made that decision today, I am asking you to do so. You can find me or Mike or Scott after service, and we'd love to talk and pray with you about that. For the believer, please examine your heart. Faith brings justification, not the law. Ask God to clean house. If there's any part of us that's trying to earn our salvation, we need to let that go. Start each day acknowledging the gift that you've been given in the salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, and let that drive you forward in obedience to a loving Father instead of trying to work to appease Him or pay for your past sin. As a father, I find much joy when my kids want to help or do something right or loving, not because they think that it will please me or get my approval, but because hopefully the love that Stephanie, my wife, and I show them and the love from their Heavenly Father is poured into them and pours out to others. It really saddens me to hear, I did this because I really thought that would get you to get me this other thing, or or that I just, I'm just trying to be this way just because I think that's the way you want me to be and I'm, I'm, I just need to be that way. Our Father desires our hearts to love Him and be submitted to Him so that we, He can pour out His mercy, grace, love, and joy into us. And as it overflows in our lives, it's going to flow out into those of our family, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, and our world. In contrast, if we say that we love God, but we are not submitted to his word and spirit, we are deceiving ourselves and again trying to make our own way. We must not live under the law or under lawlessness, but be submitted to him in faith and obedience. The law is not contrary to the promises of God. So when you see the law, rather than living in condemnation, 
We need to submit our hearts to the Lord and find joy in the grace and mercy mercy that he has lavished upon us. Rejoice that we are now sons and daughters of the Most High. He will see his good work done in us. All he is asking for us to do is to surrender, and in exchange, we get to enjoy the life and love that he gives each one of us, and a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will walk every day with us through the good, hard times and the good times. And I think it's important that we keep that in mind, that we will have good times and hard times. We're not promised a life of perfection, some utopia, but we are promised a life full of him and the joy that only he can bring in our times of hardship and the good times as well. We must remember that our sin on earth is just a minuscule blip on the radar compared to the time that we will enjoy with our heavenly father in eternity. I'd like to close with a short excerpt from Pilgrim's Progress. It's a story written by John Bunyan while he was imprisoned for his faith. And I think it's helpful when we think about the gospel versus the law. It says, Then he led him into a very large parlor that was full of dust. When they had observed it for a moment, the interpreter called for a man to sweep it. When he began to sweep, the dust rose and filled the whole room so that Christian was almost suffocated. Then the interpreter said to a maid who stood by, bring water and sprinkle the room, which she did. Then the dust settled and the maid swept the room clean. Christian asked, what does this signify? The interpreter, this parlor is the heart of man that has never been sanctified or cleansed by the grace of God through the gospel. The dust is... Excuse me. The dust is his original sin and corruption that had been defiled the whole man. The man who began to sweep at first is the law. The maid who brought the water and finished the job is the gospel. The man, though working with all of his might, could not clean the room. He only stirred up the dust and made it worse to live in. This shows us that the law, by its working, instead of cleansing the heart from sin, only revives sin, causes sin to show its strength, and increase its activity in the soul. Though it discovers and forbids sin, it does not give the life and power to subdue it. So man cannot himself give up his sin without first receiving divine life and help from above. This is why the man sprinkled the room with water and cleansed it with all ease to show you that when the gospel of Christ comes to the heart with all its sweet and gracious influence, new life comes, sin is subdued and vanquished, and the soul is made clean by the simple faith in Christ. Consequently, man is made fit for the habitation of the King of Glory. We cannot, by works of the law, make ourselves clean. We will only stir up dust and find ourselves more aware of just how sinful we are and find ourselves fighting it more and more because the law is powerless to help us. Faith in Christ, the pure gospel, is the only way by which we are justified and then sanctified, making us clean within. We are called to a life of obedience without the expectation of perfection. 
We're called to a life of holiness, but only holiness that is generated by walking day by day with our Savior in community with his Spirit and submitted to his word. And by the washing of the gospel, we are fit for the habitation of the King of glory. As the worship team comes, I'd like to just bow our heads for a couple minutes and pray and just really seek out, ask the Lord if there's something in your heart that is trying to make a way. And um, Mike and I will be on the side. If you want to come and pray, we would be more than happy to pray with you during that time. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, your grace is sufficient for us, Lord. We no longer need to live under the law, Lord. We are no longer slaves to lawlessness as well. We are brought near by the blood of Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you'd pierce our hearts to reveal places where we are trying to make our own way and submit those to you and your spirit, Lord, to be renewed and transformed day by day. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.